Once again, this morning, I direct your attention to the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, Hebrews 11, and we shall read verses 4 through 7. Hebrews 11th chapter, verses 4 through 7. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This indeed is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, our Father, we ask that by your spirit and according to what you have promised, that you would enable us to rightly hear and receive this, your word. We thank you that this day we set aside men to serve your church as deacons. We thank you for these men. We thank you for your providence in bringing them here, for their growth, and for the church's recognition of their service. And now, our Father, may this word be a charge not only for these men, but also for us. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. The list in Hebrews 11 is there to encourage us and spur us on to good works and to faithfulness. There have always been pitfalls and dangers. They encountered them and they maintained faithfulness to the Lord. And they point to us how we should live. It's never enough, my friend, for us to merely engage in privatized faith. While we must individually come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was never intended then that we camp there and not have any concern for anyone else. A missionary tells the story of a blind man who after cataract surgery in a mission hospital had his sight restored. Three days later, he came back to the hospital pulling a rope. Twenty-three blind people were holding the rope. He had found sight and he desperately wanted those who couldn't see to see. And my brothers and sisters, for us to be the Lord's that ought to be highly motivational that we do all we could to see others come to saving faith. Now, some of you are wondering, how's this going to work as a message or a charge to these men being set aside as deacons today? Well, that's a valid question. 
if you consider the texts which directly address the matter of deacons, you'll find in essence two. Acts chapter 6, which we view to be the beginning of the office, and 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for the office. It's not as though I don't have sermons from those texts or could not have made another sermon from those texts. But having covered those rather thoroughly in recent years and actually having preached them just this past April, I began to consider if there was another legitimate way that we could address this. And I think the Lord, by kindness, has granted If you look at that text in Acts chapter 6, you'll see two statements that I think are vitally important. The apostles, seeing that there's a need for this service to wait tables, as it were, to care for widows who are in need, realize they must not give up the preaching of the word and prayer. While a need may be vital, one must not destroy a need that in many ways is greater In order to fulfill it, you have to find ways to get it done. And so they say, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty. Well, that pleased the church. By the way, my dear Baptist friends, an evidence of congregationalism. And so they chose. And listen to this. They chose Stephen, and I only mention Stephen here, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think there's a contradiction here whenever the apostles say some that are full of the Spirit and wisdom, and then we have this descriptor of Stephen, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Uh, The primary, almost word-for-word overlap is filled with the Spirit. But see, when you're filled with the Spirit, you're also filled with wisdom, and you're also filled with faith. And we must never treat faith as though somehow faith is this entry point, and after that, other things are more essential. So we find ourselves in the chapter often called the Hall of Fame of Faith. It stands to reason that both our men being set aside today as well as we who are the congregation can profitably consider the necessity of faith. It is our belief today that we set aside men who are full of faith. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this. But this is also in this message, my friend, a reminder to all of us. You see, we we think, and this is where we get ourselves in trouble in our thinking Somehow, the Lord wants more than me simply believing Him. Isn't there more to this than belief? And folks, if you listen to some preachers, they make it sound like there's more to it than that. And I'm not for a moment denying there's places for excitation, there's places for obedience, there's a place to be called to this. But my friend, if we do that to such an extent that we obscure or in some way eclipse the necessity of faith, we've not only done a disservice, we may well have jettisoned the gospel. If you don't get this right, none of the other stuff matters. What that boils down to becomes this. We become basic moralists without good news we have good advice 
We can tell you how to have character and how to live. But my friend, if we cut it off from this element of faith, what we've done is we've cut it off from the life, the vitality that it needs for it to actually be meaningful. You see, faith is the essential for a life that pleases God. Faith is the essential for a life that pleases God. Now, well, I see other places where it says the Lord is pleased because of this and this and this, but my friends, those this and this and this or that and that and that all come first down to this central issue. Faith. I remember hearing years ago an old evangelist, I don't know whether any of you had heard of him, his name was Manly Beasley. Anybody besides me have any idea who that was? A handful heard it. And Manly was an extraordinary uh, minister in many ways. And I remember preaching from this text, and it did my soul good, I, but at times I wonder if he made things happen there that inserted things that maybe not. He did have this lovely outline. I'm not going to use it today, but he, he did it this way. He said, what we have here is Abel worshipped God, and Enoch walked with God, and Noah worked for God. That's a cool outline. It all has W's. I mean, alliteration, right? That's pretty cool. And some of you wrote that down because you know sometimes you'll be called on to teach class and you're going to want an outline to work with something. There you go. But I would rather us focus, I think, more on what the text says about the issue of faith. And I think it first shouts to us in the life of Abel, authentic faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Authentic faith demonstrates a devotion. By faith he offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now if you go back and read this, in the book of Genesis in the fourth chapter, you read in verse 3, In the course of time Cain brought back to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you've heard this story, read this story, heard somebody preach about this. It leads to the first criminal act of murder. Brother rises up against brother, and slays him. But I think it is important here to see what the text actually tells us. He was commended, it says in chapter 11, verse 4, as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Now, we could talk about the difference in the two sacrifices. And you could make, I think, a certain case that there was an issue of the sacrifices themselves. For while Cain brings of the fruit of the ground, 
Abel brings a blood sacrifice. And there may actually be something to that in terms of what is going on here. At least one gets the impression that Abel learned, I believe, from his parents as they tried to cover themselves with the leaves, and the Lord, rather than that, takes that away and gives them the skins of animals. There's a picture there, an implication of death, of being covered by death, of substitution. But it is also fascinating to me that when you read that in the book of Genesis, the first issue is not the sacrifice itself, it's the man. Unto Abel and his sacrifice the Lord had respect. Unto Cain and his sacrifice he did not. Now while I don't want to drive a wedge between those matters, the issue here, I think the author of Hebrews tells us, is that what Abel did, he did out of faith. There was actual confidence in the Lord. There was obedience to the Lord born out of genuine faith. John will warn us, 1 John 3.12, not to be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Well, where do the deeds come from? The deeds come from the heart. And where is it that the change has to take place in us? But in the heart. He receives righteousness, God commending him. Now, this is, this is an illustration that it's a little common and it's a little hick and it's a little country, but these are my people, that's where I came from, all right? If you find a turtle on top of a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. And if the turtle brags about how smart he was to get on the fence post, you know he's lying. Now, if you've never met a talking turtle, you haven't spent enough time outdoors. <laughs> when you see a Christian, he didn't get to be a Christian by himself. This didn't happen by his own deed and act. The Lord had to do something. And so in Abel, we see this authentic faith. This was the distinction. Abel is doing what he does in faith. His sacrifice was out of faith. Cain's was not. He goes through the same motions, but there's no heart of faith. And friend, this is what should alarm us, is it not? We can all come and gather together. We can do the same acts. But if the act is not done out of faith, then the Lord has no inclination to receive it. Faith is the starting point. Authentic faith. And fascinating, he says, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. One brother put it this way, death is never the last word in the life of a righteous man. Luther put it this way, though while living he could not teach his brother, now dead he teaches the whole world. And who would have thought in those primeval era that one of the first human beings in a simple act and a horridly violent death would be used to teach about faith. 
faith that leads to righteousness. Well, it's not only that faith has to have this element of authenticity, reality. It also ought to have an ardency. There ought to be ardent, enthusiastic faith. By faith, Enoch, verse 5, was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. This ardent faith is at times going to encounter some glorious exceptions. What a, what a peculiar thing. And I, I love reading this in the book of Genesis. I, I'm afraid some folks get bogged down once they get to Genesis 5 because it starts in the begats. At least that's the King James Version, right? Adam lived so many years, and he begat Seth. And after he begat Seth, he lived so many more years. And what happened? He died. And Seth lived so many years, and after so many years, he begat the next. And I'm sorry, I have not memorized Genesis 5. But once the child was begotten and he had a son, he lived so many more years, and what does he do? He dies, and you go through that list. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so, and then lived, and so on. And you go through this pattern, and then right in the middle of it, you have an interruption of the pattern. And Enoch lived 65 years, had a son, and after he has that son, he, he, he lives another 300 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then he goes back to the pattern. Now ponder this for a bit, and some of you are going to check my math, and so I'm going to beg off now that I probably got some of this wrong, but it's generally correct. Let, let's say that Enoch had been translated to heaven just this year, 2024. It means he'd have been born in 1659 during the time of the pilgrims coming to and establishing life in America. On his 100th birthday, 1759, he would have just lived through the Great Awakening and seen a wonderful strengthening of the church in England and America. At his 200th birthday, 1859, the United States would be on the brink of civil war. On his 300th birthday in 1959, he would have witnessed Alaska and Hawaii entering the Union, and Fidel Castro would have just arrived in Havana. In the final 65 years of his life, he would have seen television, air travel, space exploration, computers, and smartphones, and dumb people. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. Um, Methuselah would have been born in 1724 and would live till 2690. I know you said, well, that's not fair. He'd live longer than me. Yeah, by a lot. But it says he did not see death. He wasn't found because God had taken him. He walked with God. There's only, I believe, two people in all Scripture that are said to walk with God. Enoch and later Noah. 
So walking with God, what did that imply? Well, same place, same path, same pace. He was with the Lord. And I still love this story that a little kid was in Sunday school and he went home and mama said, what'd you learn in Sunday school today? He said, we learned about Enoch. Well, what'd you learn about Enoch? Well, he walked with God a lot and one day the Lord said, we're closer to my house than to yours. Just come home with me. I like that. The Lord translates him, carries him over. And then he tells us something about Enoch and his faith. Now we're told at the beginning, right? By faith, Enoch was taken up. But what does it tell us next? Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Well, okay, that makes sense. He pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. He pleased God. Now, how did he please God? He believed God. He not only believed in God, he believed God. He trusted him. And the writer gives us this extraordinary, simple statement of belief. You have to believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So in other words, you have to believe in the being of God and then you also have to believe in the concern of God that God actually cares. See, this is why mere theism, the belief in God alone to be a theist, doesn't save anyone. Christians are more than merely theistic we actually believe in a God who is involved and who cares. Enoch believed that. So much so, he walked with God. So much so that out of that walking with God, God took him home. And I say, well, now, preacher, you're drawing an awful lot out of a very tiny bit of text. Well, let's try it another way. How about John's Gospel, 6th chapter, verse 28? Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God. And what some modern preachers would do here is give you a list. Here's your checklist of all the things you need to do to do the works of God. Are you doing this, 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 this? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Simple majestic faith. Faith that our brother Willis stated earlier may be teeny. You see, folks, it's not, it's not the size of your faith that saves you. It is the glorious power of your Savior that saves you. Teeny faith brings about om, omnipotent salvation. Some of y'all spend way too much time trying to measure and weigh your faith. Stop it. Just stop it. You're not going to get that right to begin with. In fact, Peter warns us that it is only the trial of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it's consumed by the fire, is found to be genuine. We, we go around and, we've been Christians a long time. I've got this much faith. Isn't that pretty? I like it. Put it up on the shelf. That's my faith. I've got a label for it. My faith. And then 
tribulation comes and trial and struggle and things get hot and miserable and it heats that whole thing up and what you discover is what you thought was this big is this big. Right? What you thought took two hands to carry you can put in the palm of your hand if you're not careful you lose it because we have inflated understandings of how much faith we actually have. Please hear me, my friend. I'm not telling you not to have faith. I'm telling you faith is not found by somehow augmenting, pondering faith. Faith is found by looking to the glorious Savior. That's where your faith will increase. Faith is the gift that God gives. It's a belief, not merely a foggy theism, but a belief truly in the God of the Bible. And that God is certainly immense and eternal and glorious. In fact, his immensity and power is simply shocking. Kent Hughes gave, gave some perspective on this. If you think of the sun, our sun, as the size of an orange, and the earth as a grain of sand orbiting the sun 30 feet out. Okay, you following me here? Something the size of an orange, something the size of a grain of sand, 30 feet out orbiting. Within our galaxy would be 100,000 million other oranges. A lot of oranges. Separated from its neighbor, its nearest neighbor, by a distance of 1,000 miles. And there would be 100,000 million more galaxies like ours, each one having 100,000 million oranges. And some of the oranges would be 27 million times bigger than ours. Are you feeling small yet? And yet it is this God who speaks all of that into existence and who controls all of it by his might, who has set his love on you and cares for you. And Christian, if you're his, calls you his child. See, it's a, it's a gift to believe that God actually cares. In other words, you take God at his word. He says he'll forgive you if you come to him. Do you believe that? My friend, if you don't know Jesus today, understand what I'm about to tell you. You're thinking somehow to reform, somehow to change, somehow to fix something in your life. Just stop it. You're, you're lousy at this. You're just not good at it. And you can never fix it enough because it's not up to you to fix you. It's up to you to admit you're not fixable. And you need somebody outside of you. And that somebody outside of you is Jesus Christ. Believe in him. The Lord God will save you through him. Okay. I know you're wondering, is he going to finish? Eventually. Authentic faith. Ardent faith. How about active faith at verse 7? By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Oh my, Noah's day seems so similar to our own. Genesis 6, 5, 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He lived in an evil time. The author of Hebrews first tells us about Enoch, Noah's great-grandfather, who also lived in a wicked time, but was taken from it. Now, so you don't get discouraged, he tells you about someone who walked with God but was left in the world and saved in a much different way. He saves Enoch by taking him out. He saves Noah by giving him a task. His active faith esteemed God's promise, being warned by God concerning things as yet unseen. Now, we're told, Genesis 6, 9, Noah walked with God. He lived in the same kind of faith. And my friend Noah didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a support group. He didn't have a church. What he had was a single announcement from God. Build an ark. Build it this big. Gather these animals, because I'm sending a flood. Wow. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his house. Faith leads to this reverent fear of God. Now think about it this way, my friend. The ark's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. Visualize a barge, one and a half football fields long, about as wide as a football field, and four stories tall. Hmm. And Noah lived in a day when there were no naval engineers to consult with about construction. There was not a, a local office of ark construction. Hmm. In fact, there weren't even meteorologists to talk about the weather. Best we can tell, it had not actually rained in the way we think of rain. Text of Genesis says there was a mist that went up from the earth and watered the earth. Noah's talking flood, and best of our knowledge, nobody's ever seen a flood. Noah's talking rain, and nobody's ever seen it rain. And he does this for 120 years. There was timber to select and cut. There was pitch to be gathered, nails, pins, saws, hammer squares, saw horses, enough land to build the ark, etc. What a task. And twice in Genesis it tells us Noah did what God said. The author of Hebrews tells us that he condemned the world by what he did. So here's my question, Christian. How's your endurance? How's your perseverance? How active is your faith? My goodness, can you imagine the scoffing? Building a barge on dry land, speaking about a flood when it likely never rained. Do you realize how many jokes probably sprang forth in 120 years? You think your brother-in-law is going to pay you back that 20 bucks? Yeah, when Noah's flood comes. He preached. He endured. He condemned the world. Consider what it was like in those final days. The jokes had become part of the cultural identity. The ark had been close to completion for some time. It had become part of the landscape. The menagerie would have already entered the ark. Noah's sons and their wives would have gone in. Mr. and Mrs. Shem, Mr. and Mrs. Ham, Mr. and Mrs. Japheth. 
His wife would have entered. Finally, Noah would have gone in. Folks in the outside world would have laughed. Here was the punchline to a 120-year-old joke. They'd warned one another about being like Noah once once they'd celebrated their 500th birthday. They went about their business, ignoring the crazy 600-year-old man, knowing he would one day come out looking sheepish. But the doorman closed. And a week later, the ground begins shaking, and a sound of rushing water emits from the ground, and water begins to fall from the sky. But by then, it's too late. Hear me, my friend, refuse him as your Savior, you'll find him as your judge. This faith is active, it's enduring, it expects righteousness, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Genesis 7, 1, the Lord says, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. Now, don't forget the principle from the text. It's by faith Noah was righteous. It was faith that pleased God. It was faith that enabled him to endure. He did the work. He did the work. But, folks, it wasn't the work that saved Noah. It wasn't the work that led to God being pleased with him. Noah believed God. Christian, consider the lines of this hymn done by Francis Scott Key, who wrote our national anthem. Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee. Rouse thee from thy fatal ease. Praise the grace whose promise warmed thee. Praise the grace that whispered peace. And see, folks, we have an ark. And to many in this world, it looks at least as silly to believe in Jesus the way we do as it looked to Noah's generation for him to build an ark and go inside of it. My friend, your ark and my ark is the one who claimed to be the God-man, who called himself the Son of God, who died on the city dump outside Jerusalem on a Roman cross, raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of God. He is our salvation, or as the old Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said, he is the ark for all of God's Noah's. Faith. Simple, straightforward faith. It is a faith that's authentic, it's ardent, and it's active. Those are outcomes, but it starts here. It rests in Christ. Join me for a word of prayer. Our Father.